Welcome to I Want That, which is a brand new series here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, one that focuses on the dynamic world of Disney merch. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill. And I'm entertainment writer Michelle Valladolid. And this is show two of this series, which means that Michelle and I are still kind of feeling our way here, trying to decide what aspects of the genuinely vast field of Disney collectibles we should be covering with this podcast. Which is why when I said we should cover food... I said no. Jim said no. (laughs) Because food is not collectible. Food is perishable. Mm -hmm. That half-eaten churro may remind you of a particularly magic moment during (laughs) your most recent Disney vacation. But as a general rule of thumb, souvenirs do not require refrigeration. But because I was once married to Jim, I know that just because he says something with confidence doesn't actually mean Jim is right. Food is not a collectible. Well, that's not what people who were visiting Disney Springs earlier this week were thinking, as they came to that spot on the west side between the Starbucks and Characters in Flight, and then discovered that Disney delish pop-up. Oh, God, you're talking about that limited-time experience thing across from Disney style. Yes, that pop-up, which sold Disney-themed apparel, which was then presented in specially designed, food-inspired packaging. Just because you buy a t-shirt that's packed in a popcorn box or comes in a pizza-slice-shaped container doesn't make it food. Listen to you. That said, all of these Disney delish items were still selling like hotcakes. (laughs) There there was a Keeping It Cheesy made-to-order adult t-shirt that sold for $39.99. It was packaged in a specialized design pizza box. And there was also the You Had Me at Pizza adult t-shirt, that sold for $34.99, and it was packaged in a box that was supposed to look like a cardboard container you carry away an individual slice of pizza in. Disney Delish also sold a kid's t-shirt that was packaged in a takeaway donut box with mini on the outside. This sold for $29.99. And the final item that the Disney Delish pop-up sold was also for kids. It was a black t-shirt that was sold in a specially made popcorn box. It also sold for $29.99. Is it me, or is $39.99 an awful lot to pay for a t-shirt? It's not just a t-shirt. It's a t-shirt that you bought at Disney Springs from a pop-up that was only operational from Friday, February 22nd through Sunday, February 24th. This whole retail experience was based on the concept of scarcity, exclusivity. Hell, the Disney Delish pop-up was only open from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on those days. If you weren't there at Disney Springs on those three days, more importantly, during the four hours on those three days when this pop-up shop was open for business, you then missed your chance to buy this food-themed apparel, which was then sold in its specially made food-themed package. That, in and of itself, turns these items into highly prized collectibles. Still seems kind of pricey to me. I'm going to get kids' t-shirt for $29.99. Did I mention that this limited time experience also featured entertainment? There was a Disney-created doo-wop group, four guys called the Delish Singers, that sang in front of this pop-up to entertain the people who were standing in line to buy their Disney Delish merchandise. There was also a walk-around Streetmosphere character, I forget her name, who was supposed to be the fashionista who actually designed this whole line of clothing. The Disney creative group went all out. Trust me, this pop-up got a big reaction from people who were visiting Disney Springs this past weekend. 
they moved a lot of merch. I'm sorry, while you were talking, I was Googling Disney food and merch, and this whole wave of stuff that, what, starting back in January, began showing up at the Disneyland Resort? Well, actually, it started in, ni- in 2015. Oh. Disney uh, had a has a mobile game called Disney Dream Treats, Disney Dream Treats, and when it started, it's actually a really fun game. When it started, they sent me a Dole Whip air freshener. Mm-hmm. And the, I hung that thing in my car, and it lasted like a year. It was so good. It smelled so good. But no, they've been doing the food thing for a while. I'm a little confused because this looks like... Well, the Disney Delish are... line is new. And a lot of it's okay. done by Jared Mariama, who I love. But they've mm-hmm. got everything from Minnie Mouse-themed donut ears. Which, by the way, look very Simpson-y. Don't they? Don't they look like Lard Lad? Yeah, those are tw- twenty-seven ninety-nine. But they're okay. but they're beautiful. I've seen them in person. They're great. You can also mm-hmm. purchase a Dole Whip shaped purse for nineteen ninety nine, or mm-hmm. a floor mat that features a trio of cups of Dole Whip that look like the ones you can purchase on the stand out just outside the entrance to the Enchanted Tiki Room. That floor mat sells for thirty four ninety nine. I'd like to eat Dole Whip. I don't know if I'm all that enthusiastic about stepping on Dole Whip. Well, yeah, murder on the socks. But if you mm. like eating Dole Whip, you can also get a Dole Whip-shaped tumbler for twenty two ninety nine, which, just in case you're wondering, is about three times what you'd spend to buy a real Dole Whip for float at Disneyland. They're currently going for six forty nine a piece. But let me ask you something, Jim. Mm-hmm. What do you think the price point would be on a Dole Whip tumbler that you could get endless refills all that day? I don't know. It sounds kind of like you'd have to kind of sort of sign. Again, this is a Disney theme park. You you sign the house over and, <laughs> and you get endless Dole Whip. I'm thinking so. $99.99. There we go. But so. there's all sorts of other items to support this new Disney theme park and food product line. Things like Mickey Waffle and Mickey Bar Shaped Coasters and like a uh, cupcake stuffed toy and it smells good. You were mentioning Mickey Bar. Yes, yes. Have you seen as part of the... The Mickey's 90th anniversary thing, Nestle is now making those Mickey-shaped ice cream bars that, you know, the ones you can buy in, in the park available at your local grocery store. I think they're going for a box of six for $7.49, whereas if you buy the one in the park, there they go for $5.25 a piece. They're free on the Disney Cruise Line. Oh, well, they bring them. They bring them straight to your room. I know when I was there, they did it. Okay, but <laughs> math is not my strongest suit. But on the other hand, if I'm, say, a parent who prior to going to Disney World or Disneyland or that sort of thing has bought the $7.49 box of uh, Mickey bars, distributed all six of them to my friends and family, I'm thinking I'm going to have an issue. Distribute them to their friends and family. I'd lock myself in the closet with those. <laughs> but if I'm paying five twenty-five in the parks after doing that, that's going to be an ugly conversation. I don't, you know, I don't agree. And hmm. it's because, you know, they're already used to the $3.50 apples, you know? Hmm. And things like that. But uh, speaking of purchases made in a theme park, I wanted to circle back on that homework assignment that we gave I Want That listeners last week, which was, when was the first time you remember getting off a Disney ride show or attraction and then being forced to exit, forced to exit through the gift shop? 
Now, we had a number of longtime Disney theme park fans, and they described getting off the Jungle Cruise and then walking across the street to the Adventureland Bazaar, where you could then find items available that keyed off of what guests had just seen while they were cruising up the Irrawaddy or down the Nile. I'm not exactly sure on the batting order of the, the rivers in, in the, that eventual attraction. Yeah, but that's not really what we're looking for here. We're trying to pin down when exactly Disney opened a gift shop at one of its theme parks that was then stocked with merchandise that was specific to a particular ride, show, or attraction, and then deliberately positioned the exit for that ride, show, or attraction in such a way that guests were then forced to exit through the gift shop. Which isn't to say that a gift shop that's not physically connected to a ride, show, or attraction, one that perhaps across the way, like the Adventureland Bazaar, across from the exit of Jungle Cruise, that that couldn't do a healthy business. I found a great quote from senior concept designer Tim Kirk. Tokyo Disney sees he and Steve, they basically carried the ball on that whole park. But in this specific moment, uh, Tim was the Imagineer who was in charge of designing and then building the Indiana Jones Adventure Outpost at Disney MGM Studios theme park. I think this opened in spring of 1990. For those of you who don't know, the Indiana Jones Adventure Outpost is the gift shop that you're forced to walk past when you exit the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. And found this article in issue nine of the WDI magazine. That's uh, used to be the... Yeah, I used to be the in-house magazine for Walt Disney Imagineering. And in this article, Arden Ashley, she was the prop buyer for this project. She talked about how the landscaping and architectural work that had been done in the space between the Epic Stunt Spectacular and the Indiana Jones Outpost, how it works so well together. That the exterior of the Outpost really catches the guest's eye. And the the way the landscaping is done in this post-show area literally forces the guests to walk straight into that shop. I'm checking today's entertainment schedule for Disney's Hollywood Studios. Jim and I are recording this show on Sunday, February 24th. Today there are five presentations of the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular, and the capacity of that theater is 2,000 people per performance on when they have a full house. So working the math here, Max 2,000 people times five performances of the Epic Stunt Spectacular. That means that up to 10,000 people, as they exit Indy, are then being directed to enter the Adventure Outpost. Okay, which brings me to the quote from Tim Kirk I was talking about. Um, When people exit the stunt show, they go right past all this stuff. It's a great way to sell merchandise because their blood is boiling after seeing the show and they want to buy something. Which supports what you said on our first I Want That show, when you talked about how the Imagineers were trying to get the guests from the offload area for a ride, show, or attraction to a display of merch for that ride, show, or attraction within a set amount of time. I want to say 57 seconds, 58 seconds. 57. Mm -hmm. Because that's when, as Tim Kirk said in that article, the guest's blood is still boiling. Their sales resistance is low. So at that point, they'll seriously consider buying a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a keychain that figures the logo of the ride, show, or attraction that they just experienced. Or a pin. Or a pin, of course. Got a pin. All right, and speaking of 57, 58 seconds... Michelle and I need to put a sock in it here for a moment, but it's a sock with a logo on it, so it, it stays with the theme. <laughs> but when we get back, we'll share some news about one of our favorite Disney artists and her latest collaboration with Hasbro. 
And we're back. Quick question. How many of you out there are aware of Amy Meberson? Me, me. I am. I am. I love Amy. Whenever I'm at Comic-Con or WonderCon, I always make a point of swinging by her and James Silvani's table. Well, you don't have to go to San Diego or Anaheim anymore to see Miss Meberson's work. To be honest, you almost never did. If you've got daughters of a certain age who are into the Disney... Or sons. That's true. <laughs> there are bronies out there, you know, because yeah. then she also does work for the, uh, the, the My Little Pony. You've already seen Amy's work, which is clean, crisp, clear, beautifully designed, always on model. And I got her Muppets and her Ducks. So good. Mm-hmm. So good. And she was doing covers for uh, Disney's comics for before she really got into uh, doing her own stuff. If you hear Amy talk about her career in illustration, it was actually, oddly enough, a Disney princess that actually got her into the business. In an August 2010 blog post, Amy stated that, My artistic epiphany took place when I saw Belle dancing with the Beast in that ballroom. I'd always loved Disney, but that's when I knew I wanted to be a Disney artist. I love that story. But it took a few mm-hmm. years and a couple of interesting side trips before Meberson began earning her living as an artist. Back when she was in college in Australia, Amy majored in classical voice. But after years of training, not to mention six months of intense study in London, Ms. Meberson decided that classical singing wasn't for her, and she returned to Sydney where, thanks to all the sketchbooks she filled up with drawings during her teens, Amy landed a job as a trainee in between her at Walt Disney Animation Australia. Jim, it just occurs to me, not only mm-hmm. can she draw the Disney princesses, she can probably sing like one. Oh, there you go. Before I forget, though, here, I don't know if you caught the Academy Awards, but did you see the moment where the Pixar shirt bow won? Yes, I did. Alice and I thought that was awesome. To the nerd girls. Well, yeah. she actually talked about, I want to say it was, was it the producer or the director? I forget. But uh, she, she talked about the nerd girls who fill up their sketchbooks. Yeah. That's Amy. That's Alice. That's a million other girls. And guys out there, and people who are flu- gender fluid. There we go. Okay, so we were talking about Amy's gig at the Walt Disney Animation Studios Australia, and that studio, for those who don't know, dates all the way back to 1988. Walt Disney Animation Australia originally did work on series like The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Goof Troop, Aladdin, Timon and Pumbaa, but his Walt Disney Home Entertainment Studios started moving into the home premiere business, the staffers there were recruited to work on The Return of Jafar. The folks back in Burbank were so impressed with what the team in Australia had done. They then assigned this group of artists to working out of Sydney several sequences for a Goofy movie. And that was so good. I love that movie. It is. It's a great movie. Not to poke the bear here, but there's a part of the Walt Disney Studios home entertainment story that... Many animation snobs don't like to acknowledge that there were, in fact, a number of home premieres that were well animated, that had strong stories, and were legitimately entertaining. To hear, you know, the animation snob team talk, they tend to paint with a very broad brush. They prefer to dismiss all of Disney's home premieres as, as, what did they used to call them? Cheekwools. Cheekwools. 
But if you actually look at movies like 2002's Return to Neverland, which so impressed the folks back in Burbank that they arranged for this Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment, hi Leslie, production to actually get a theatrical release in the U.S. in February of 2002 before the VHS and DVD versions of Return to Neverland then hit store shelves in August of that same year. A lot of the reason that these home premieres look so good, as good as they do anyway, is because of that talented team at Walt Disney Animation Australia. And Amy was one of the staffers at that studio in Sydney, steadily climbing the career ladder there till she was promoted to assistant animator in 2006, which unfortunately is about the same time that Walt Disney Animation Studios shut down, right after they finished working on the great Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. But again, all the time that Amy spent assistant animating Disney's second princess, did eventually pay off because as Ms. Meverson transitioned from becoming a professional comic artist, doing those Muppet and uh, Pixar comics that she did for, what, Boom Studios in 2008 to 2011, she started a side project, an online comic. Now, now mind you, Amy had done a, a webcomic previously, uh, Thorn, which is worth seeking out. Mind you, you, you got a hammer on the way back to get to Yeah, this it's so hard to find. It's ridiculous. The, the strip's title character is a stitch. She's a, a little girl with a very big attitude. <laughs> but this next side project, right from the very start, Ms. Meberson was very clear. Each edition of this one-panel comic came with a notice that said, Fan art. All characters copyright Disney. No reproduction or sale permitted. And that was because Amy didn't actually have the right to use any of the characters in a comic strip. And that was because this one panel comic strip was built around the Disney princesses. But no one had ever seen the Disney princesses like this before, all living together under one roof and having, for lack of better word, some attitude. Take, for example, the very first pocket princess, which popped up online back on November 10th, 2011. It shows Belle berating Pocahontas, Rapunzel, and Briar Rose for tracking up the house with their bare, muddy feet. And she's, I can so Belle's like, girls? Shoes? Ever heard of them? And Pocahontas' dismissive reply is, old world problems, honey. Admittedly a lame joke, but it is Lao once said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And having uh, minored in Asian history, I really proud of you for correctly uh, attributing that quote. But my favorite part of Pocket Princesses is actually something that appears in about half of them and it's a slot on the door. This is pizza here. Well, that's what's fun about them is that this is a real place or at least as Amy has envisioned it. Yeah. Amy continued with this completely unauthorized passion project and over time, the design of Pocket Princesses got cleaner and tighter and the writing got a lot funnier. Some of my favorite strips over the past eight years. Tiana from Princess and the Frog is standing in the kitchen looking on with horror as Snow White and her animal friends tidy up. Tiana turns to Cinderella and says, this cannot be sanitary. Cinderella's response is, Snow's just trying to help. Don't worry, we'll scald everything tomorrow. In a similar vein, Pocahontas and Merida return empty-handed from a hunting trip. Tiana's standing in front of the stove and says, Well, I was expecting venison. And Pocahontas gen gestures towards Snow White, who's standing in the door to the kitchen and says, I'm not cleaning a deer in front of you-know-who. But my absolute favorite is when they have to all put their weapons on the table, weapons on the table, and Snow White has this little fat bluebird in front of her, and she's got her hands behind her back, and she's like, 
you know, with a little music note above her head. <laughs> Amy can pretty much do whatever she wants with these characters because, again, unauthorized passion project. So take, for example, what she did in the summer of 2017. Uh, Warner Brothers had just released Wonder Woman. And again, smash hit. And obviously, you know, you have all of these these Disney princesses living together in a house. They must have gone out and seen Wonder Woman because for that year's Comic-Con, she shows all of the Disney princesses dressed up as Amazons and, you know, headed off to San Diego. Yeah, and when The Force Awakens came out, they were cheering on their, their fellow princess Leia by all uh, being behind the ropes at the premiere. All, each of them dressed as a ver- different version of, of Leia. Uh, the hut killer, or hut slayer rather, the uh, bosk, the buns on the side of the... I mean, everything. Except for mm-hmm. Snow White, who was dressed in a crooked Darth Vader mask. And because it was crooked, she couldn't see anything and was like feeling her way around. But Disney princesses also does things like acknowledge Chinese New Year. This time around, because it's the year of the pig, Ham, Andy's piggy bank from the Toy Story films, put in a cameo appearance. And this past Friday, there have been, or as of this past Friday, there have been 276 pocket princess one panel strips. If I've counted correctly, and Amy doesn't take a week off between now and then, the landmark 300th pocket princess strip will be published sometime in August of this year. Uh, Michelle and I are not the only fans of Amy Meverson's Pocket Princesses. The folks at Joe Books Limited, uh, they have a publishing agreement with Disney Comics, clearly love her work as well. They reportedly reached out to Amy in late 2014, early 2015, and proposed a collaboration. One that wouldn't necessarily introduce the Pocket Princesses to a wider audience, but rather would take the genuinely unique way that Ms. Meverson draws these Disney characters and the voice she gives them, and and then, well, build a Disney princess comic book series around that. So the first print issue of this project, Disney Princess Comics number 1, hit store shelves back in March of 2016. Well, the difference is that the pocket princesses all live together. And according to Disney canon, the princesses don't hang out together. So... One moment here. Hmm. Okay. You and I both know where this is going. You're you're watching Frozen. You're watching for the first time in forever. You're watching Anna. They, she open up the doors and she she's right. walking out. But and there, who, who who's coming Rapunzel, in? I know. I know. And and Eugene, all right. right? So I'm just saying. I get that, but Disney says okay. that she can't put mm-hmm. like Snow White with Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. She can't. She can't put them together. So these comic strips are each one is about a separate, a different princess, but okay. they're hilarious still. Seventeen issues of Disney Princess Comics have been published, with roughly half of those comic books featuring all sorts of contributions by Amy. We're talking stories written by. Image is penciled by, inked and colored by, even the covers drawn by. A lot of that work being done by Amy. And there's been a couple of books out. And uh, I have I have one of them. And Amy signed it and drew a picture in it for me. Got it at Comic-Con. Uh, Target began making hardcover mini collections of some of these Disney Princess comics available for purchase last August. But then again, as you walk the aisles of your local local Target around that same time... You'd see a lot of Disney princess stuff that featured Amy's unique take on these characters. So there, there were T-shirts. I think those with Amy drawn princesses. Uh, those were July of last year. 
And then in August, uh, this same retail chain, working with Hasbro, launched the Disney Princess Comics Posable Figure Collection. Again, this was a only a Target thing, right? And there was a standalone figure or standalone figures based on Amy's unique way of drawing the Disney Princess. There was a one of Belle, one of Pocahontas, one of Rapunzel. There was a paired set, right, that had. Aladdin and Jasmine, uh, as if they were on their magic carpet and they're about to set off for the whole new world thing. And then there was a, what, a little mermaid trio, which had Ariel, Eric, and Ursula, again, uh, based on Ms. Meberson's designs. And Hasbro must have clearly enjoyed working with Amy, because at this year's just-wrapped American International Toy Fair, they announced that, coming in the fall of 2019, they'll begin shipping to stores around the country a new series of blind boxes that will figure Disney Princess comic minifigures that Ms. Meberson herself designed. The current plans call for two waves of these minifigures. Twelve collectible two-inch tall figures will be released with each wave of this new Hasbro-produced blind box line. And each of these blind boxes will have a suggested retail price of $4.99. And for those of you who have absolutely no patience when it comes to blind boxes, and I'm in this category, that Hasbro will be releasing two sets of these two-inch tall Disney Princess comic minifigs outside of the blind box line. One called Belle's Story Moments. This set will feature Gaston flexing, Belle in her gold ball gown, and Beast in his getting ready to dance with Belle in the ballroom outfit. The other set, which is known as Ariel's Story Moments, that features Eric in his sailing off to an adventure outfit. It's got Ariel in human form and Ursula the Sea Witch looking kind of queasy. And speaking of being kind of queasy, and you mentioned that the difference between what Amy does with the Disney Comics line and the Pocket Princesses is that, again, the Pocket Princesses, they live together. And this was a unique idea until Wreck It or Ralph Breaks the Internet came out. Where they got that idea. Yeah, but but here's the thing. If we're talking timelines here, where exactly does Amy's work with the Pocket Princesses fit in with the whole Vanellope meets the Disney Princess sequence out of Ralph uh, Breaks the Internet? What kind of muddies the water here is back in December 4th of last year, Dark Horse Comics publishes a 64-page Ralph Breaks the Internet book that is supposed to be both a prequel and a sequel to the Rich Moore Phil Johnson movie. And who helped to write and pencil this click-start-select-your-own-story adventure? Amy Mebers. Look, Amy's clearly proud of this project. Via Instagram, she talked about how this Dark Horse Comics was, I'm quoting directly now, my first-ever solo writing credit. An eight-page story featuring the Disney princesses. End quote. The publication of this Ralph Breaks the Internet prequel sequel also marked, again I'm quoting direct from what Ms. Meberson posted on Instagram, the first time I've drawn Anna and Elsa in an official comic. Yeah, took long enough, right? Enjoy. End quote. So here's the thing. If Amy's seemingly okay with how much inspiration the Vanellope meets the Disney princesses sequence takes from her pocket princesses comic strip... Then who are you, Jim, to raise a stink about this issue? The first version of the sequence, which what was basically shown in its entirety at the Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios, the upcoming films presentation at the last D23 Expo, July 2017. 
uh, was far closer in style and tone to Pocket Princesses. I mean, it had really funny little scenes like Snow White admitting that she was legally blind. Remember the original film from 1937? You know, she runs through the forest and is constantly holding up her hands in alarm. And that's not really alarm. It's because, well, she showed as she put on Coke bottle thick glasses that she can't see. Or uh, they had uh, Jasmine. But, you know, she revealed that she was allergic to cats. And then she, I think Jasmine pulls out an inhaler and Linda did this incredibly funny, phlegmy cough kind of a thing. What killed me is there was this wonderful cap for the whole scene, or the, this version of the scene, where Penelope is standing in the middle of all the Disney princesses, and it's like, wow, you guys look so perfect from the outside, but, but on the inside, you're just as messed up as the rest of us. That version of this sequence for Ralph Breaks the Internet wound up being rewritten between July 2017 and November of 2018. But honestly, that was largely because of story-related issues. I mean, this was more about the overall role that the Disney princesses would play in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Uh, and it wasn't till relatively late in the game that they this came up with This is about the scene of, where Rapunzel asks Vanellope... That's exactly. Do people assume that all your problems get solved because a big, strong man showed up? And Vanellope is like, yes, what is up with that? Which then leads the rest of the Disney princesses to explain she is a princess. That is correct. And it's given that that scene got such a strong reaction, uh, both at the D23 Expo and at, at test screenings that were done for Ralph Breaks the Internet, well, well, Rich and Phil knew that at some point in this Walt Disney Animation Studios production, they were going to have to do a callback. They were going to have to find some logical way within the framework of this Ralph Breaks the, or, you know, a Wreck-It Ralph sequel, that the Disney princesses were then going to have to rescue this big, strong man. And I mean to make a big deal about this. I'm just saying that imitation is the, the sincerest form of flattery. I just hope that whenever Amy Meberson watches Ralph Breaks the Internet and they get to that Vanellope meets the Disney princesses scene, that Ms. Meberson feels very, very, very flattered. Well, I remember when, because I was sitting next to you and, and I was like, pocket princesses! Yep. <laughs> yeah. mm. If you'd like to see Amy's unique take on the Disney princesses in its purest form, Pocket Princesses is posted every Friday on her Facebook page, as well as on Amy's Instagram account, Amy Meberson. On the other hand, if you'd like to meet Amy in person, she and James Silvani, who, who actually has a uh, Kylo Ren costume, so you might run into him in costume at Comic-Con, will be appearing at mm. this year's Emerald City Comic-Con, which is being held in Seattle March 14th to 17th at the Washington State Convention and Trade Center. And don't they normally follow Emerald City Comic-Con with WonderCon? Okay, but here's the thing. If you go, actually go to Amy's official webpage, which, by the way, is amymeberson.com, under Upcoming Events for 2019, it currently says, in regard to WonderCon... Her appearance there this year is to be confirmed, but likely. So Magic 8-Ball says, ask again later. Anyway, before we close out today's episode of I Want That, I want to point out that Ms. Meverson tries to stay right on top of the news when it comes to subjects she covers in her weekly pocket princess strips. 
That's why in last week's one panel, which came right after that killer teaser trailer for Frozen 2 was released, Amy put together a pocket princess where Elsa, who's clearly looking a bit bedraggled because she spent all this time battling all of that rough surf, is talking to Moana about how, well, could you talk to your friend, please, as she gestures toward the sentient ocean wave for the movie version of Moana, who also, for some reason, is now hanging out in the living room of the house where the Disney pocket princesses all live together. And Ariel's there, too, with a rope trying to help. Yeah. The only princess that Alice and I noticed we haven't seen yet there is Shuri. I'm thinking, again, Magic 8 Ball says check back later. Yeah, we'll probably see Shuri in, in there. I hope so. I'd like to see uh, Here's hoping. You know, Snow White trying out those arm things. There you go. <laughs> okay, now, this is the part of I Want That Podcast where we said to wave goodbye. Goodbye. Don't worry, we'll be back soon with another episode, but if our listeners can't wait for our first March 2019 show, where can they find you, Michelle? They can find me writing at Mice Chat or podcasting here with you or with Alice Hill on the Pink Monorail podcast. Okay, and my set of events, the podcast is centered at all, Disney Dish with Len Testa. We've got Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, which is our animation news and history podcast. We've got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, which obviously talks about the Universal Parks and Resorts. And we, and again, we also do uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with the dazzling Dan Z. And I, I guess beyond that, folks, a uh, quick favor to ask, if you uh, could take a moment uh, to head over to iTunes and rate and review our show, that Please. would be extreme, extremely helpful. It really is. It helps so much. And on behalf of Michelle, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next show.